the scripture this morning to read the scripture. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Colossians, we'll read together. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 17. It'll be up on the screen there, it looks as well. So let's read together. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is in all, is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. As you teach, admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Thank you. I don't know about you, but uh, when that video started and you could hear the birds in the background... It just instantly felt like about five degrees warmer in here, didn't it? Actually, those of you who are sitting further back should be thankful. We're never quite sure what we're going to encounter, um, as you know or may know, that uh, we, uh, we rent this space from week to week. And every time when we come in, we're not quite sure what we're going to find. Obviously, it's been very cold this week. And uh, one of the things I've discovered over the last few weeks is that the uh, stage area behind me here, there's actually no heat up there at all. And so on Sundays like this, it's very cold up there, and the, the cold air just kind of cascades down here and comes across the front floor. And I'm, my hands are like numb right now. And uh, I don't know if you guys can feel that uh, draft as well. So just be forewarned. You might want to move back or move over and cuddle up or whatever it is just, uh, just to warm up this morning. Um, it's good to know, though, that this is our temporary home and that... Uh, uh, God willing, we'll have shovels in the ground in May and be able to uh, start to build our own building right in the heart of Twilliger Town. And, uh, you know, that is a good metaphor, really, for understanding part of today's message. To understand that uh, this place, this our time here on earth, really, is is temporary. And that we have an eternal focus to look forward to. And so this morning, we're going to talk about some upward thinking. We are in a series based on Paul's letters. Uh, we've already looked at uh, Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. And this morning, we're going to look at Colossians and specifically the, the verses that Ken read for us already. 
And as we are looking at each of these letters, each time we are seeing that these are uh, real letters written to real people sometime during the first century. And while we today may be separated by time and space from all of those events and the, the, right, the, the original receivers of these letters, they still speak to and encourage and sometimes challenge us today. You may have seen this uh, old candid camera trick where uh, one person will start and just be uh, out in a public place somewhere and they'll be looking down on the ground and intently looking um, and then sometimes even getting down on their hands and knees and looking a little bit more and soon enough somebody else comes along and assumes that they're looking for something and, and they'll start looking as well and then another person and another person and soon there's a small crowd maybe half a dozen or so that start to gather and then you see the guy that started this whole thing quietly get up and walk away and these people are just left looking for it nobody ever really bothered to ask what they're looking for they just thought it would be obvious maybe a ring or you know some kind of piece of jewelry or something and and they're just left looking for whatever they're supposed to be looking for and sometimes that's just like us, isn't it? We can get so focused on the here and now. Maybe we put some blinders on. We put our heads down. We, you know, we put our shoulder to the plow because we have work to do. And pretty soon we start to wonder, you know, what it's, what is this all about? And today I hope that we can get our eyes off the ground, off the temporary, and look to the eternal. And so we'll do that with a little upward thinking. By looking at Paul's letter to the Colossians will help us do that. So first of all, I want us just to maybe help us understand Colossians a little bit. We've been doing this where we kind of do a, a flyover at about uh, 30,000 feet. Just to understand some of what's happening, maybe what prompted the writing of the letter. This particular letter, letter has many features of the typical New Testament letter. It begins in typical fashion by calling on God to pour out his grace and peace upon the Colossians. Paul and Timothy are explicitly named as the authors in, in verse 1. And so Timothy was very likely Paul's secretary for this letter. Uh, Paul would dictate that, and, and so he would write it. There's uh, uh, Throughout the letter, it's just in the first person that, uh, that uh, Paul writes this. And the salutation is given in verse 2 to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at, Col uh, at Colossae. And Colossae was a city in, in uh, Phrygia in the prov Roman province of Asia. It was located on the Lycus River, just over about 160 kilometers east of Ephesus. And I'm kind of a little bit of a geography uh, nut there, so I, I like looking at the maps because, again, it, it grounds us that these are real places and, and, and real events that took place. And so you can just see uh, Colossae just on the kind of bottom left corner there. Um, there uh, there's references in this letter also to Laodicea. And um, Hierapolis there, there. Thanks, look at uh, Somebody's helping me out. Thanks, Lance. And, uh, and then you'll see Ephesus just up and, uh, and to the left there a little bit. And so that grounds us a little bit. And, and again, you look at a map like this and you see that each of these letters, there is a reason and a place and a people that Paul wrote these letters to. And we've already looked at the churches in Galatia there at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. And, uh, and like I said, Ephesians and, and, um, and, and others as well. Now, it's interesting to note that uh, although Paul likely had never been to Col Colossae, he nevertheless feels this pastoral responsibility for this group of Christians. The church apparently got its start during Paul's three-year ministry in Ephesus, 
And during that time, a Colossian named Epaphras, he probably traveled to Ephesus and responded there to Paul's sharing of the gospel. And so this new believer now, he returns to his hometown and he begins to share the good news of Jesus with others. This resulted in the birth and ultimately of this new church in, uh, in Colossae. In, uh, in verse 1, we, we, uh, we can pick this up where in the first few verses he's been talking about God's grace and about the gospel. And then he says in verse 7, he says, You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. And so what's happening here is that as Paul is writing this letter... Epaphras now is likely with him in Rome, and he had likely shared with him the bad news that there was some dangerous thinking, some dangerous teaching that was threatening the church. And so Paul writes this letter to respond to the situation and to encourage the Christians in their growth toward Christian maturity. There's not too much, there's a lot of debate about what this threat may have been. But it seems that it's likely that it may have come from one person within the church who had attracted a following and was presenting himself as something of a kind of a Christian spiritual guide. And this person probably claimed to have superior insight into the spiritual realm, and he was advising the Colossian Christians to practice certain rites and taboos and rituals as a means of protection from evil spirits and from deliverance from afflictions. In other words, again, we see this thing that, that, that he's, he's, he's not seeing Christ as supreme and ruler of everything, that, that somehow we have to need a little help along the way. And so that's what, uh, what he was uh, teaching. And so when Paul hears about the, the spreading influence of this teaching and, and how it devalues Jesus and it fails to somehow help these new Christians appreciate um, their new identity as believers in Christ, he writes this letter of warning and encouragement. And he does not in any way minimize the threat presented by these demonic powers, but he emphasizes ultimately the supremacy of Christ over all of these powers. And that really is the key theme in this letter, is that Christ is supreme. Christ is Lord of all creation. We, we sang it this morning, ruler of all nature, including the invisible realm. And so Jesus has defeated the powers of darkness on the cross, and Christians ultimately share in his power and authority over that realm. And so Paul's encouragement to the Christians is that they continue to grow in maturity in Christ. Well, to see some of this specifically taking place, we're going to look at chapter 3 in these, uh, these first uh, few verses in chapter 3. Chapter 3 really marks a shift uh, in Paul's focus away from answering this false teaching, which you can read about in, in uh, chapter 2 primarily, and, and is a transition to his appeals for the Colossians to live in a way that is pleasing to God. And so he's moving away from some of the theology to, to more practical um, theology. Just like he does in Ephesians, where the first three chapters are about theology and about the spiritual blessings we have in Christ, and then chapter three or chapter four moves into a, a very practical um, application of that. And so this first, the first thing I want us to see is that what Paul addresses is our changed focus. 
He says right off the, in, in the very first, first verse, since then you have been raised with Christ. And so Paul is using here a metaphor taken ultimately from Christ's work on the cross. <coughs> Excuse me. Being raised applies having died with him. And just a few verses later, he actually says that for you died. And, and dying and rising with Jesus means that there is death to the power of sin and the power of Satan, plus ultimately an empowerment to live this new life that Jesus called believers to live in imitation of him. And so what he's saying is that the same power that is at work in the resurrection that rose Jesus from the dead is at work in each of our lives to change us and transforms us. That's amazing to me. And so he says there, then, since this is true of you, you've been, you've been raised. In, in Ephesians, he talks about this. You've actually been seated in the heavenly realms. You already have a heavenly perspective. He then says, continuing in verse 1, set your hearts on things above, right? So our affections, our attention. And again, in verse 2, he says, set your minds on things above. And both of these ultimately are in contrast to what he says are earthly things. And so Paul is saying that once we are in Christ, that is that we have crossed the line of faith, we've believed in Jesus, we've repented of our sins, and now we're trusting him alone for our salvation, our focus ultimately changes from an earthly perspective to a heavenly perspective. And so some translations actually use the word seek instead of what the New International Version says, set your um, hearts or set your minds on things above. And I like that word seek because I think it's a little bit clearer about the fact that it's, it's, a, it's a doing word, right? It requires effort. There's an intention on our part to seek those things that are above. And he says the Colossians are in essence to be constantly seeking these good and holy things of God, the things above. And the idea here is that part of what should really grab our attention and our thoughts on a really, uh, a, a, you know, a, a fairly moment-by-moment moment basis. It's not, not, not in the sense that, you know, you've heard the expression, you know, so, what, heavenly-minded that we're no, what, earthly good. But the sense that there should be an awareness, a, 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 a deeper understanding awareness that, that we are in Christ, that the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives, and that He will, if we ask Him, continually make uh, uh, changes in our life and give us direction and all of these, these things that He'll do in our lives. And so the idea is that we reflect on and have an interest in heavenly things, that we set our minds on things above. Now this means that now we should be pursuing a deeper knowledge of Jesus Himself. But ultimately, we could declare like Paul did in his letter to the Philippians. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. That was his prayer. I want to know Christ. I want to experience the power of his resurrection. And that became really a, almost a, 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 probably a daily prayer for him. Today, Jesus, I want to know you a little bit better than I did yesterday. Today, Jesus, I want to experience the power of the resurrection in my life. In whatever form I need it at that moment, the issue I'm dealing with, whatever's before me that day. 
And so now our focus is on discovering what it means to live with Jesus and for Jesus. It means ultimately seeking first his kingdom and living a life worthy of his name. And like he says in verse 4, when Christ, who is your life. When I was reading that this week, it just, it just, it hit me. It was like, who is my life? Can I honestly say that? Because I know for me, it's, it's hard to keep that focus, to keep that understanding. You know, we get involved in the routines and kids' activities. And, um, you know, as you know, uh, or I, I mentioned last week that Tina has uh, been away this week. And, and suddenly there's a whole nother gamut of responsibilities and focus and trying to juggle this and do that and make sure, um, you know, you're getting everybody to the, to the right place at the right time. And boy, we can just, right? We all experience that. We get so caught into the routine of our regular day-to-day life that we forget, ultimately, that Jesus is our life. Maybe you've seen the t-shirts, you know, hockey is life or soccer is life, like fill in the blank. You know, they make them for just about anything, you know, because it's like, If this is your passion, it becomes your life. Have you seen those? Or am I the only one that's seen it? Please, you know, help me out with that one. But whatever, you know, is your passion becomes your life. But for the Christian, our focus changes from all that earthly stuff, right? Our passion changes. And now we have a new focus, Jesus, right? So our our shirts should say, Jesus is life. Jesus is our life. We want to know him. We want to be like him. And we want to experience his power at work in our lives. That becomes a driving and motivating focus of our lives. And if that's going to happen, Paul goes on to say that it's going to require a change of clothes. How we dress as a Christian changes. Not literally, of course, but spiritually. And in the next few verses from 5 to 9, Paul talks about putting off the old. And the image here is of changing clothes, taking dirty, stinky, smelly, stained, ugly clothes that have to be removed first, right? So, so Paul encourages the Colossians to continue eliminating sinful behaviors from their lives. And so he, he calls the Colossians to make a decisive break with some of the, 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 the sinful tendencies that they've carried with them into their Christian lives. He says in verse 9, Since you have taken off your old self. And he's making reference here to the fact that this When you trusted Jesus as your Savior, when you said, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you crossed that line of faith. The Bible talks about that as being a time of conversion or your moment of salvation. When that has happened, the old is gone and the new has come. Okay? The problem is, we know that we're not just instantaneously sort of cleaned up. And so while it's done kind of once and for all at that moment, there is a continual work that is required. And he says in verse 5, with very strong language, he says, you need to put to death 
whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And the language that he uses here indicates that, that sometimes Christians have to take very severe measures to conquer sin. So it's not about rationalizing or justifying or coddling sin. It's literally putting it to death. It's to squeeze the life out of, out of any power that that sin might have. Right? When, a couple weeks ago when, when I preached from Galatians, I made the comment that, that when we become a follower in Christ, that the, um, the sin nature no longer reigns, right? It no longer has control, but it remains. And so it's like this baggage that we have. And it's continually a, a battle that we have. Then he goes on to describe what that looks like, and it's a pretty ugly list. Sexual immorality, referring to any and every kind of sexual activity outside of marriage. Impurity, moral uh, impurity of all kinds. It it even has an inward reference here to the mind and the thoughts. One translation uses the word dirty-mindedness. I think we understand that. It says lust. It's a passion for others and and uses others for self-gratification. Evil desires is just simply a a craving for evil things. Greed, always wanting more, never having enough, often wanting what others have, right? Because the greedy person is never satisfied with, with what he has and is usually envious of what other people have. And Paul adds to that greed, which is idolatry. Because... Whatever we want more of can become an idol to us. Greed puts things in the place of God. And things become our focus and our passion and the object of our devotion. But when we are in Christ, that is all changed. Or it should change. And so he says in verse 7, he says, You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived, But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these. Again, you know, think about this. Putting to death, ridding yourselves. There's this immediate and decisive resolution. Okay? Again, get using this metaphor of changing clothes, right? It's like going through your closet and getting rid of all of the dated, worn, ugly clothes that you no longer want, that no longer are fitting for you. Maybe they no longer fit, right? They're just not your style anymore. And you go through all of this stuff and you bundle it up, you put it in, the, in a great big garbage bag and you put it out on your front porch for somebody to take away. You get rid of this stuff. You put it to death. He starts another list then. Because we may have thought that we escaped through the first list. And then he adds anger. Right? Just a kind of a, a, a continuous attitude of hatred that sort of remains bottled up within. It just sort of festers below the surface a little bit. And then he says rage, which is now this anger that comes bursting out. Malice is a, an attitude of, of ill will towards a person. You, you actually you know, want harm to come to somebody. That's what malice means. It's not a very nice list, is it? Slander. 
destroying another person's good reputation through lies and gossip and rumors. Filthy language, right, which is just crude talk or abusive words, even swearing or sexual innuendo. It all can fall under that category of filthy language. And lying, which includes all deception and deliberate untruthfulness, such as half-truths that convey the wrong impressions, exaggeration, and, and even a distortion of facts. Not telling the truth ultimately um, breaks unity because it breaks trust. Right? If you've ever been in a, in a relationship, it's, it's, it's one of those things, and, and you discover that somebody has misled you or lied to you in some way, it just it changes that, the, the status of that relationship until you can resolve that and rebuild that trust, right? And so all of this, Paul says, that we need to put it off, we need to get rid of it, we need to put it to death. And so that's important because before we can put on the new, we've got to take off the old. Right? He doesn't just say, leave this old stuff on and then just clothe it up with new, better-looking stuff. He says, no, you've got to get rid of the old stuff first, and then you can put on the old. Um, have you ever looked at, you know, maybe pictures of yourself, um, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago? And because... Clothing styles have changed and things like that. You look at that and you, and what's the first thing you notice like of wedding pictures from like the 70s and 80s, right? The great big collars and you're just kind of like, man, I can't believe I wore that, right? And you, you just look at that and, 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 and there's almost a bit embar- embarrassment to that, right? I know there's a, a couple pictures of some things that I wore that I hope never ever surface in, in public, right? Because it's just like, oh, that's awful. And, and, and to some degree, that's the way it should be with our lives in Christ. That when we look back, maybe, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, and we think about some of those things, maybe we're even slightly embarrassed about that. Have you ever, you know, I, I've had this experience happen a couple times where I like, I watch a movie that I remember from 10, 15, 20 years ago. And I'm like, oh, this was a great movie. Hey, Lucas, sit down. Let's watch this together. And you put it on. And it's just like, ah, stop, you know, because you completely like forgot just how awful it was. Maybe now there's just a, a greater sensitivity to that just going, you know, I, I can't see that as being honoring to God. I remember one experience. This was embarrassing. Um, I graduated from high school in, in 85, so if you want to do the math, you can figure out my age probably, roughly, and uh, got married in 94, and so in 1995, and we were living in Calgary, we had a 10-year high school reunion, and this is still recent enough where, you know, kind of maybe some people have contact with each other, and it was at a community hall in the Bonnie Dune area, and um, they went and, and took any pictures that kind of, you know, surfaced from the uh, graduation night and after-grad party and all of that stuff and, and enlarged them to like eight and a half by 11 and then just stuck them all the way around this room. And so I'm there with my new wife who sees me as a pastor, only knows me in that kind of um, situation. And we're standing there and she looks at a couple of the pictures. She goes, she goes would you be in any of these pictures? Like, oh, I don't think so. And right by the one we're standing, I mean, it could have been anywhere. She looks and she goes that's you. And I'm like, no, it can't be. You know, that's you. It's like, 
in a hot tub with a great big bottle of water, I'm sure, you know, staying, keeping hydrated for my, for my after grad party. I was in the hot tub. I was being, and I remember just going, ah, oh, really? And it's weird when I run into people that I know from back then or, you know, even Facebook, I'm always a little nervous that somebody's going to post something. Hey, Norb, remember when? <laughs> you know? And it's like, oh, please. Right? And that, that's, that's, that the point is, is that while there was a change earlier in my life, there's a process that takes place. The technical, theological word is sanctification. And, and so we're, you know, we're, Becoming what we already are. Right? Because we're declared holy, but then we have to live into that. We have to become what we are. And so he says, now, after putting off the old and kind of all that negative stuff, we want to put on the new. So he says in verse 10, put on the new self. And then he goes into verse um, 11 or verse 12 and really refers to our new identity as God's chosen people. And I love the words that he uses there. God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Right? Like I just said, so, so we're holy. That's kind of maybe not a thought that you often have. We're, we're saints. And the, the Bible makes the... There's a very clear transition that once when we were dead and, and we were sinners, we've now been made alive in Christ and we're saints. And sure, we're, we're saints that sometimes sin. But this has already happened. We've been made holy. Although... Like I said, sometimes it doesn't seem like it, but this is what we are. But using the terms that Paul is using here, he makes it clear that there is an effort that needs to be made to be what we really are. And throughout the Bible, we are encouraged to live holy lives. That's the putting off part and the putting on part. And he says we're dearly loved. Maybe for you this morning, that's just what you need to hear. That if you are in Christ, you are dearly loved by God the Father. But he tells us what we should clothe ourselves with. He uses First he says compassion. That's a, a great looking garment, isn't it? Having a heart of compassion where we have deep feelings of care and mercy that will result in action towards others. It says we should put on kindness, right? Kindness is just showing goodness, generosity, and, and sympathy toward others. It's a desire for another's, another person's good. It, it's, it's almost the direct opposite of malice, right? Wanting something ill to happen to somebody. Here you, you really want a desire for something for another person's good, and you, you go out of your way to, to do a kind act, Humility. Some of these aren't that easy to put on sometimes. It's a humble-mindedness that we're to be clothed with. It's really, in a, in a sense, a, a low estimate of ourselves. 
It's not to say we have a low esteem of our, ourselves. It's just to say, don't think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. The world doesn't revolve around me or around you. And in fact, in, in Philippians, Paul writes and says that, you know, you should have the same attitude that Jesus did. And he makes reference there. He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. And he puts it this way. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But here it is again. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests. So it's not that you stop looking out for yourselves. There's, t- legit- there's some legitimacy in that. But it's that you don't just look out for yourselves. Because he adds, but also to the interests of others. It's humility. And then there's gentleness. Is it really a spirit of quiet submission? Not weakness, but rather a, a spirit of, of Christian courtesy. Where we're just, we're fun to be around because we're gentle. We're not on the flip side of, you know, abusive or harsh or, or edgy. There's just a gentleness about us. And, and you know people like that, right? And you, you think, I'd like to be with that person because they have such a gentle heart. And God says, you know, we can clothe ourselves with that too. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Does this list start to sound a little familiar to other things that Paul has written to other churches? The patience is really just the ability to follow God's plan and timetable rather than our own. It means abandoning our own ideas for how the world should work. Being patient with what God is doing, being patient with others. We think they should act according to, to our expectations of them. Right? And remember that this putting on is something that we have to put an effort to, but at the same time we need to be dependent on the Holy Spirit to do this work in our lives. So that's something you can just will enough you know, willpower up to say, I'm going to be more gentle today and have a little more patience and, 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 and show some more humility. But it's coming before God saying, with your help, help me to, to be more compassionate today and help me to be gentle and patient. It talks about forbearance. You know, sometimes we have to put up with others. I love the, this phrase I heard one time. It's just sometimes we have to breathe, breathe grace towards people. Um, just, just when we do that, and if we all did that, we'd probably just, it would be great, wouldn't it? Forgiveness, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And then he says at the end, and above all of these things, put on love. And we've already seen this in a, in a previous message in this series, how crucial a foundation love is. Because it's just that attitude that says, I care deeply about you and others and about God and and, and I want the very best. The very best. So I'm going to meet whatever needs that we need to make. And so I want us just to be careful that, you know, when we look at a list like this, you know, it's not, this is so much more than just a resolution on our part to, you know, to be good. But it is the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart and mind starting to remake us in the, in, in Christ's image, so that ultimately reflect, we will reflect His glory and do His works. And while we can think through these lists, we can focus on the eternal, <coughs> excuse me, 
And I hope that in many ways the personal application is clear and obvious. Maybe there are certain things that in, in your life and in my life that we need to put to death, that we've sort of just kind of coddled a little bit and we let them come up, you know, kind of off the canvas a few times. And it means, no, we've got to just press down hard and, and, and squash the last remaining life of that out, out. And I want to say again, as we often make reference to, and I don't think we've, we've emphasized as much this year, but, you know, the life journals that we have uh, at, at the back and just making a daily quiet time with God a huge priority in our lives. I mean, I've, I, I say this so many times. When my life starts to kind of wander and trail a little bit, I, I just kind of, oh, you know what? It's been a few days. Maybe it's been longer. And immediately, you know, when you get back in the Word, the Holy Spirit just picks up and continues to do the work that, uh, that He started. And I just want to encourage you because I believe that it will be a huge help to all of us to transform our thinking because ultimately that's what it's all about. Romans 12, 2 talks about that we should be renewed by the trans... that, that um, um, we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Right? So as our minds and as our thinking is changed, and we do that by immersing ourselves in God's Word and God's truth. And so I'm just encouraging all of us today that let's not be so earthly focused, but to get our thoughts up above where they should be.